Luke chapter 9 marks a transition in the gospel of Luke. Up until this point, the disciples, where they show up, function as observers. In chapter 5, Jesus calls a Matthew, a Peter, James, and John to follow him. So we meet them there. Uh, in chapter 6, Jesus looks over all of his followers and he designates 12 of them as apostles. Something changes in chapter 9. Up until now, they've been listening to Jesus. They've been watching Jesus. They've been observing Jesus. They've been taking notes. They've been trying to figure him out. They've watched Jesus heal. They've watched him be confronted by religious leaders. They've watched him teach, raise a young man and a girl from the dead, tell parables about the kingdom of God, and liberate a demon-possessed man. They've seen all of this. They've been there watching, but they're just kind of in the background. They're the audience. They're the spectators up until this point. And, and it's important for us to notice this, that they were observers. In order for anybody to know what life in God's kingdom is like, we first have to see the Son of God. We first have to see the one who claims authority over that kingdom. And that's what's happening with the disciples. They're, they're watching, they're looking, they're paying attention to Jesus. The Gospels are filled with this sort of thing. People who are just watching, who are looking, who are listening in. And that's where some of us are this morning. Some of us are observers of Jesus. We haven't committed our lives to him. We're watching him. We're listening to him. We're curious about him. He doesn't quite fit into any one of our boxes. So we're, 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 we're interested. We're intrigued. And that's good. If you're in that place, you're in good company this morning. This is where the disciples were. But something changes in chapter 9. Jesus makes it clear that anybody can observe him. There's no gate. There's no door. Anybody can observe Jesus. Anyone can try to figure him out. Even Jesus' enemies do this. They're constantly trying to figure Jesus out, to understand him. What is he all about? So while any of us can observe, disciples are those who follow Jesus. Listen again to how chapter 9 begins. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They are no longer passive observers. Something shifts, something changes in chapter 9. As Michelle pointed out last week, this very inadequate collection of tax collectors, fishermen, political ideologues, they are no longer simply to watch Jesus. They've been given their marching orders. They are now to do what they have seen Jesus do. And I want to just be incredibly clear about that this morning. Being a follower of Jesus means following Jesus. Being a follower, I know that sounds remedial, right? Being a follower of Jesus means following Jesus. And again, if I can just speak to those who, who, who may not consider, maybe, maybe you don't consider yourself a Christian, I want you to hear that this morning, that being a Christian is being somebody who follows Jesus. Being a Christian isn't somebody who has Jesus totally figured out. 
as Michelle was recapping her sermon for me, she said, you know, one of the points I made was that, that the disciples, they didn't really understand Jesus yet. And yet he still called them. They still followed him. There was still way more the disciples didn't know about Jesus than what they did know about Jesus, and yet they still followed him. Being a follower of Jesus means following Jesus. This is one of the things I loved about our service in November where different ones of you told stories about how Jesus is king in your life. And, and, and Amanda told her story about last Easter and kind of having this moment where she realized, I don't have to understand everything about Jesus in order to still give my life to him. And that was a, a really beautiful thing for me to hear. Someone who's intrigued by Jesus, wants to know more about Jesus, but man, there's so much I don't get yet. There's so much I don't understand. And yet coming to that point saying, I know enough to follow. This is what Jesus calls his disciples to do. You know enough to follow. This, I think, can be a stretch for many of us. We are Western people. We are modern people. We are scientific people, even if you don't consider yourself scientific. We like evidence. We like proof. We like to think of ourselves as fairly rational. Would you agree? Don't you like to think that you make decisions rationally? That you're not an irrational person? When it comes to matters of faith, there's a sense that we have been conditioned to think that we've got to have a 360-degree angle around faith before we could say yes to it, before we could accept it, before we could buy in. You're not all that rational. You and I, we may like to think of ourselves as rational creatures, but we don't really live our lives that way. If we did, none of us would ever get married. There's no rational guarantee that it's going to work out. We would never take a risk for that new job. We would never expose ourselves to being hurt, to being abandoned, to being neglected. Jesus is not calling his disciples to a ignorant belief. He's certainly not calling him, them to a mindless faith. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he, it's like he's saying to his disciples, you've seen enough. You've heard enough. You've experienced enough. So jump in. So jump into it. So follow me. You still have questions. You still have reservations. You still have doubts. But you've seen enough to follow me. So come on. And this is what his disciples do. They follow him. To live as a as a Christian, is not to live a perfectly moral life. To live as a Christian is not to live a life of, of this amazing faith that never has any doubts. To live a Christian life is to live as a disciple, somebody who follows Jesus. To those of us this morning who are Christians, let me just say that again. To live a Christian life is to live as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. 
think some of us this morning have slid into that cultural assumption that our faith is something contained inside me, in my head, in my heart, that doesn't really affect how I live, the way I interact with the world. And because of this, your faith has begun to feel passive to you. As if believing in Jesus is the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. For some of us, it's almost like we got to Luke chapter 8 and we said, okay, I got it. I can, I can be done now. I just have to observe Jesus. I just have to watch Jesus. I just have to believe in Jesus. But there's more, yes? Come and follow me, Jesus says. Just as Jesus sent his disciples with power and authority to do the things they had seen him do, Jesus has also sent you. Your faith is not to be passive. So we're going to see over and over again in this series that this is what being a Christian is about, following Jesus. Then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. Last week, Michelle looked at proclaim, sort of a theme of discipleship. Well, today our word is withdraw. Can you say withdraw? Withdraw. That's not the sort of word that comes to my mind when I think about discipleship. kind of feel like Michelle got the more exciting passage. Proclaiming the kingdom, healing the sick, don't take anything for the road. I mean, this is serious stuff. This is risky. That sounds like discipleship. That sounds exciting. Withdraw to Bethsaida? And it's just one little verse, right? I mean, it's verse 10. Maybe we shouldn't make too much of this, but, but here's the thing. What we find in, in Luke is that Jesus withdraws regularly from the crowds, from ministry. And so in chapter 4, we read, At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. And in chapter 5, we read, But Jesus often withdrew, often withdrew to a lonely places and prayed. And perhaps most famously, and Renee, I think we may have this one, in chapter 22 of our gospel, the gospel of Luke, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Withdrawing, in other words, is a normal aspect of Jesus' ministry. This is not something exceptional. This isn't just a throwaway verse. This is something that happens regularly as Jesus pulls back from the pressures of life, from the, from the pressures of ministry. It is a prominent feature in his life. And as we have already seen in our passage this morning, it's something that, is not, that, that Jesus doesn't just do by himself. He calls us to it as well. Then he 
took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves. So just as it's expected that you and I, as followers of Jesus, proclaim the kingdom and act as agents of healing in this world, so it's also expected that we are regularly withdrawing with Jesus. Here's the main point this morning. Being a disciple of Jesus means withdrawing regularly with Jesus. That's the main point. Being a disciple of Jesus means regularly withdrawing with Jesus. I have this sense that, that some of us this morning, we kind of hear this and we're like, eh. Like, it's just not that exciting. To Marvin, it's exciting. But Marvin, I can see everybody else. I have a different vantage point than you do. We hear this, and it, I, it doesn't, I'll be honest, it doesn't sound exciting to me. Withdrawing with Jesus. Like, as Christianity 101, right? Have your quiet time. I actually am pretty convinced that this is one of the most challenging aspects of discipleship. And let, me, let me give you very, three very brief reasons why I think this is so. There's a cultural reason why this is so hard. Our, our culture values accomplishment and achievement above all else. Yeah? So if I've, never, if I've never met Lamar before, right, somebody introduces me to Lamar, I don't ask him, first off, where are you from? I don't ask Lamar, who's your family, like some cultures would do. What do I ask Lamar? What do you do? Where do you work? Right? That's not just like a random question. That's like kind of just entrenched in the culture that we grow up. And I, I want to know what you do. I want to measure you somehow by what you do, by what you accomplish, by what your status is. The closest thing that most of us in our society get to withdrawing in any sort of a spiritual sense is going on a vacation, right, or crashing on the couch at the end of the day. There's also a personal reason why this is so challenging. It's this. Withdrawing with Jesus implies that we are regularly engaged with Jesus in his mission. You can't withdraw from something you're not first engaged with. Amen? Are you engaged? Do you find yourself living on the front line of God bringing heaven to earth? Because then all of a sudden withdrawing will make a whole lot more sense. But if I can be blunt this morning, many of us spend far more energy, far more time, far more money advancing our own plans than in advancing the kingdom of God. And I put myself right in the middle of that. We give more of ourselves to advancing our agenda than we do giving ourselves to God's kingdom coming. And so we feel no pressing need to withdraw with Jesus because we haven't been engaged in the first place. And then I think there's a spiritual reason why this is incredibly challenging for us. One of my favorite passages, Jesus speaking to his disciples in John chapter 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
the, the secret of discipleship, the secret of the Christian life is remaining attached to Jesus. This is the center for us. That we are in vital, vibrant relationship with our Savior. Jesus says this is where life comes from. This is how you bear fruit in this world is by remaining attached to me. And without this, Jesus says, we are like dry, withered, fruitless branches. And we have an enemy who knows this. We have an enemy who knows that our power and our authority in this life is not self-generated. It does not come from ourselves. It doesn't come from working really hard or trying to be spiritual. Our power and our authority in this world, as Michelle pointed out last week, comes from Jesus. Remaining attached to him, attached to the vine. This is where our authority, this is where our power, this is where our life comes from. We have an enemy who knows that if we can be distracted from Jesus, our power will be limited. If we become severed from the vine, then our spiritual power and vitality withers like a branch ready for fire. We have an enemy who knows that if he can convince us that we are too sinful, too dirty to come back to Jesus again, that we will have no power in this life. Church, it's not accidental that many of us at the beginning of every year say, I'm going to pray more this year. I'm going to read my Bible more this year. I'm going to meditate more this year. And it lasts how long? It's not accidental. It's not accidental that we spend way more time entertaining ourselves than in nurturing our relationship with Christ. That's not accidental. We have an enemy who knows that if we can be distracted just enough. I wonder what's on TV right now. I'm going to hit that snooze button one more time. Right? We have an enemy who knows that if we can just be distracted, doesn't have to cause us to to commit some grievous sin, to to do something horrible. We just need to be distracted enough. Say amen if you're with me. So this, this idea of withdrawing with Jesus, church, it's a challenge. It's not something for us to take lightly this morning. It is the center of our faith. And so Jesus regularly withdraws from the pressures and the strains of kingdom work, and he invites us to do the same. These times of withdrawal are times of rejuvenation, reorientation to the truth. These are the times that we hear again, you are a beloved child of God. You are accepted. This is your identity, your starting point. Some of you need to hear that. You've not heard that for far too long. We would be foolish this morning to downplay the incredible importance of this time with Christ. And it would be equally foolish to assume that these times of refreshment for our soul would somehow just happen to us. There are very good reasons that many of us 
take this sort of time far too infrequently. So what does it look like? I want to spend the rest of my time trying to help us see what might it look like were we to regularly withdraw with Christ, to accept his invitation to step back and be with him. So three different sets of words for us this morning. I think we may have these, Renee. The first is this. Withdrawing with Jesus is both natural and purposeful. Tomorrow we recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And one of, uh, one of my, the, the, the stories about Dr. King's life that has been most important to me, most formative to me, comes from his early years working in the civil rights movement. His family is still pretty young, and he's really beginning to feel the pressures for the first time of this work. I mean, he's, he's gotten some phone calls before. He's gotten some hate mail before. But now it's as if the world is collapsing on him. And, and, and this is what he writes about this time. One night toward the end of January, I settled into bed late after a strenuous day. Coretta had already fallen asleep, and just as I was about to doze off, the telephone rang. An angry voice said, listen, we've taken all we want from you. Before next week, you'll be sorry you ever came to Montgomery. I hung up, but I couldn't sleep. It seemed that all my fears had come down on me at once. I had reached the saturation point. I got out of bed and began to walk the floor. I had heard these things before, but for some reason that night it got to me. I turned over and tried to go to sleep, but I couldn't sleep. I was frustrated and bewildered, and then I got up. Finally, I went to the kitchen and heated a pot of coffee. I was ready to give up. With my cup of coffee sitting untouched before me, I tried to think of a way to move out of the picture without appearing a coward. I sat there and thought about a beautiful little daughter who had just been born. I'd come in night after night and seen that little gentle smile. I started thinking about a dedicated and loyal wife who was over there asleep. And she could be taken from me, or I could be taken from her. And I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was weak. Something said to me, you can't call on daddy now. You can't even call on mama. You got to call on that something in that person your daddy used to tell you about, that power that can make a way out of no way. With my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud. The words I spoke to God that midnight are still vivid in my memory. Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I'm here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak right now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. Now I'm afraid. And I can't let the people see me like this because if they see me weak and losing my courage, they will begin to get weak. The people are looking to me for leadership. And if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I have come to the point where I can't face it alone. Withdrawing with Jesus is both natural and purposeful. Dr. King was not laying in his bed that night going, Oh, I forgot to do my devotions today. I forgot to pray today. I better get up and pray. Why did he get out of bed? 
It was the most natural thing in the world for him. Why? Because he was engaged in God's mission in the world. That night, he couldn't not talk to Jesus. He couldn't not bear his soul to his God. It was the most natural thing in the world for him to withdraw in that moment at midnight at that kitchen table before his God. Are, are you with me? When you and I are following Jesus closely, we will find ourselves in the sorts of circumstances that require that we regularly pull back to be with Jesus. We will be desperate for time away with him. But we, will, we also must be purposeful. I've already pointed out the many good reasons why this doesn't always come naturally for us, these cultural, personal, spiritual reasons. This week I got an email from a woman who used to attend our church. She's now moved out of state, and she's found another church, and it's a good church. I know the pastor there. She's really struggling. She, she loved you. She loved this church. This had become her community. And she said, I, I don't want to go to church anymore, is what she said in the email. See, there will be times when withdrawing with Jesus does not feel natural, does not feel normal when we will not want to even, that we must be purposeful. Your leadership team ha has been talking about this. For the past few months, your leadership team ha has talked about what it looks like for us as leaders to be nurturing our relationship with Christ so that we're leading out of a place of spiritual depth. And so so the, our last meeting in December around my kitchen table, we all shared with each other ways in 2013 that we wanted to be purposeful to be nurturing our relationship with Christ so that we would be growing deep in our faith, knowing that it won't just always feel natural, even as leaders in this church, that we must be purposeful about it. What does it look like for you to purposefully withdraw with Jesus? It may involve setting aside certain times. Let me get real practical right now. Maybe it means at this time of day, this is when I know I have time and space to step away for a moment, to listen to the Holy Spirit for a moment, to pray, to read the scriptures. Maybe it'll mean uh, keeping certain devotional materials nearby. I, I do that. There's certain authors that I just have near me that I can turn to. I can, I can grab Howard Thurman and hear him for a moment. I can grab Evelyn Underhill and, 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 and hear her for a minute. I can grab Brother Lawrence from centuries ago, and he can talk to me about the beauty of Jesus. Point me back to him. Maybe it's journaling. I don't like to journal. Anybody like to journal here? I, I don't, but I do it because my spiritual director told me to do it. A couple years ago, she said, you need to start journaling. I said, I don't like to journal. It's not natural. She said, do it anyways. And so about once a week, I make myself journal. And I still don't, it doesn't feel natural. I still don't want to. But during this time of journaling, as I write out my prayers to God, I, I pray things I wouldn't have thought to pray otherwise. 
I see things in myself that I need to repent of, that, I, that have kind of bound me up, insecurities that have attached themselves to me that I need to repent of and move on from. What does it look like for you to purposefully withdraw from Jesus so that in those moments when it does not feel natural, you are still meeting him and hearing from him? What does it look like? Here's the second set of words for us. Withdrawing with Jesus is both individual and communal or corporate. This is the example we see with Dr. King. It's an individual withdrawal with Jesus. He's at his kitchen table alone. His family is asleep in his house. We see Jesus do this time and again. He goes off by himself. It's like sometimes he purposefully sneaks away from his disciples. They don't even know where he is. He's going to be with his father, to hear from his father. Can you be all by yourself with God? I'm an introvert. Okay, so I, sometimes I think that's a handicap, but in this area, I think it's, it helps me, right? Because I get sick of people after a little bit, right? So I'm like, oh, great, yeah, me, you know. But, but, but be, the ability for us to be alone with God is a sign of spiritual maturity. My, my natural thing, when I get in my car, I turn my radio on. I just boop. It's set on to public radio. And you know, the, the thing is, like, I won't even know what's on the radio for like the first 20 minutes I'm driving. Like I'm not even listening to it. You know what I mean? It's just there, just this background noise, just this nice distraction. Can you be in your car? Can you be in your room? Can you be on the L quiet before your God by yourself? One of the parts of this individual piece is acknowledging that you and I are unique people. That the way that Jennifer withdraws with Jesus will look differently than it does for me. And it should. I'm a morning person. A morning is a great time for me to read the Bible. I'm more or less awake. At night, I make it through like a verse where I read the same verse like 20 times not because I'm doing that intentionally, but just because I keep falling asleep. And just Some of you are night people, though. So that time when everybody else has gone to sleep, it's the best time for you to pray or to be in the scriptures. I have a friend who, um, his, the best way for him to pray is to be in his condo all by himself. And he walks around and he prays out loud. It's like nobody else can be in the condo with him because it's like, he didn't want him to hear, you know, or like thinks he's crazy or something, you know. But for him... That's the, that does not work for me. I heard that, like, oh, I'm going to try that. It, didn't, it, it was not helpful for me. I just felt self-conscious the whole time. Like, am I sure somebody's not in here listening to me? Like, for me, being on my chair in my room when it's completely quiet, no one else is there, just being able to sit quiet, that, that is how I'm pulled into prayer. It's going to be different for you. This is this individual piece. Some of you need to Get out to the lake and be reminded that God is a God of beauty. This evokes something for you. Others of you need to walk down a busy street in your neighborhood being reminded of God's compassion for our city. But there's this communal, this corporate part as well, and we forget this a lot of times. Some of us grew up in cultures, in church cultures, where the idea of withdrawing with Jesus was always this very individual thing, just you and Jesus, right? 
But what we're doing here right now, this also is coming away and being with Jesus. Because you passed a whole lot of people on the way to church this morning who weren't going to church, right? They weren't withdrawing from Jesus, and that's okay. That's their decision. But you and me and us, we together are pulling apart for this time to encounter God once again and be encountered by him once again. Showing up to your community group during the week. Walking into that person's apartment again, sharing some food together, opening the Bible together, praying together, even when it feels like you're just kind of going through the motions. It's an act of withdrawing together to be in the presence of Jesus. Our retreat, our all-church retreat last year when we went up to Lake Geneva for two nights and just had this time apart together was a deeply refreshing time for many of us as we rested in the presence of God together. We'll do it again this June. So we do these things both as individuals, but also as a community. Withdrawing, from, withdrawing with Jesus is both natural and purposeful. It's individual and it's communal. And then finally, it's both peaceful and dangerous. One of the things that happens when we take time away take time in the scriptures, take time in prayer, take time in community. One of the things that happens is that we're reoriented to truth. As we were praying earlier today, there are certain things that attach themselves to us, certain things that get bigger in our minds than they ought to be. And so one of the things that happens, we pull back and all of a sudden truth reorients us. So this is how Dr. King finishes that story as he's reflecting on that night. He says, it seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness, stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and lo, I will be with you, even until the end of the world. I tell you, I have seen lightning flash. I've heard the thunder roar. I felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus saying still to fight on. He promised never to leave me alone. At that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I have never experienced him before. Almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. I was ready to face anything. Have you had that experience? Have you had that experience where, where, you, where you come to prayer, overwhelmed by something. Something has become so huge, so powerful. For Dr. King, it was the the people who were threatening his life. It was the people who were saying, we have control, we have authority, we have the power over your life. And then in prayer, he's reminded, no, 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 you don't. No, you don't. There's only one who has power over my life. And he will never leave me. Have you had that moment where you come just overwhelmed, discouraged, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit reminds you of what is true? And that thing just slides off you? We saw this in our study of Philippians last fall in the context of prayer. Paul promises that the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is in this place, church, that we hear, as Dr. King heard, the voice of God reminding us that we are loved. 
that we will never be forgotten, that we will never be abandoned. Some of you need that right now. Some of you need to encounter God in such a way where God becomes so big that everything else becomes small. You can know once again the peace of God. But, and I, and I want to end here, This is also a dangerous prospect, withdrawing with Jesus. Because our time away with Jesus eventually leads us back to the front lines with Jesus. You can't stay perpetually withdrawn because that's defeat. Anybody who withdraws and stays withdrawn has been defeated, right? For it to truly be withdrawing, we have to once again engage with Jesus on the front lines of God's mission in the world. And there are way too many Christians who think they're being really spiritually, but in, really spiritual, but in fact, they've just become so withdrawn that they're not effective anymore. They're on the sidelines now. They're great at saying beautiful things, and we're great at reading lots of the Bible. We're great at being really spiritual with each other, but we're living defeated, safe lives. Withdrawing with Jesus implies that you and I will follow him back to the front lines the minute he says so. So this is what happens with Dr. King. He'd been advocating for nonviolence but he's still keeping a, a, a pistol in his house to protect his family. Makes sense. He was literally getting death threats. People were getting bombed. But on that night, he decided that he had to get rid of that gun. And God told him, I will be your protector. And so, and so he, he, he gives it up. He gets rid of it. He has no guns left in his place. Three days later, his house is bombed. His family is fine. But do you, do you see what I'm saying here? Withdrawing with Jesus is dangerous. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the text tells us that an angel comes to comfort him. He knows the peace of God, even in his anguish. But moments later, he's arrested and led to the cross. These things are held together. We know the peace of God even as we know the dangerous mission of God in our world. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. Now, this is a, just as a good a place as any to end this sermon. We're going to see again and again in the coming weeks that following Jesus is not safe. If your life's goal is financial prosperity, security, comfort, the trappings of the American dream. The way of Jesus is going to be a perpetual disappointment to you. Because the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. It is the way that requires withdrawing with Christ not to escape the world, 
It requires us to withdraw regularly with Christ because following Jesus leads us to encounter the brokenness and the pain in our world. But this is also the way of life for us. Amen? The way of Jesus is also the way of salvation. The way of Jesus is also the way of the kingdom of heaven breaking into our lives, breaking into our families, our neighborhoods, and our city. So take some time this week to pull back with Jesus, to withdraw with him. Some of you know exactly what that needs to look like for you. Others of you don't. Like maybe, maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never been in a rhythm where you're regularly in prayer, regularly hearing from the scriptures, regularly engaged in that sort of community. Ask me about it. Ask the person next to you about it. Jump into a community group and talk to the folks in the community group. What do you do? How do you read your Bible? How do you pray? We get to ask each other those sorts of questions, yes? These are not private things for us. Help one another. Imagine what this sort of a, a vital, vibrant, attached to Christ life looks like. There is one who today and tomorrow will try to distract you from this, who will try to dissuade you. But there is also one far greater inviting you to come with him. And though he invites you to withdraw with him, he will never withdraw from you. Though he invites you to, to step away from life for a minute with him, he will never step away from you. Though he invites you to leave the pressures of your job, of your family, of your neighborhood for a minute, he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Worship team, come on up. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm aware that this sort of sermon can, can make some of us feel guilty as if we're not doing enough, as if we're not doing the right things, as if we've let you down. I'm also aware that for some of us, this who grew up in church, maybe this sort of sermon just kind of brings back trite cliches about having devotions and reading your Bible because that's what you're supposed to do. And so I just pray that you take all that away from us for a minute. Would, would you replace that instead with this uh, image of a God who wants to be with us? Of a God who wants to pour life into us. Of a God who wants to speak truth to us. Of a God who wants to show us grace upon grace upon grace. Of a God who wants to remind us over and over and over again, you are my child. I bought you with a price. I love you. Give us a vision of a God who has called us right to the front edge of heaven coming to earth, right where things are the most messy, the most confused, the most broken. 
of a God who has said, you're not just a spectator anymore. You're not just an observer. Come into this with me. Join with me in this. It's an image, a vision of life that is so meaningful that we can't help but pull back and spend time being rejuvenated and refreshed and encouraged and having the truth spoken to us again and again. So I pray for my sisters and my brothers this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would be showing them very clearly and specifically what does it look like for them to take time away with you this week? What does it look like for them to remain attached to the vine this week? Would you give us a desire for this? Take away any feeling of guilt. Take away any feeling of duty or religious obligation and replace it, Lord, with a a hunger and a thirst to sit in your presence, to be filled by you. We thank you that you want this. We thank you that you do not require this for our acceptance, that you do not demand this in order that we would be loved, but that you want us. You want time with us. You want to give us what we need for this life. So we we love you for this, Lord. We love you for being this sort of God. for a while, but what I want to invite you to do is to to stay and to continue worshiping. Just allow the worship team to to sing over you. Uh, If you need to go, just uh, if you just leave very quietly, or if you need to talk with somebody, you can step back in the lobby, but I want to invite you to stay, to worship a little bit more. I'll be up front if you want prayer. I'd love to pray for you, anything the Holy Spirit is bringing up or doing in your life. Uh, But don't rush, don't rush away. Um, There's an invitation in front of you this morning from a God who wants you, who loves you. And maybe you know that after you leave this place, the rest of your day is just going to be nuts. So maybe you need to just grab a few more minutes right now to sit in the presence of God, to not rush off, okay? So set up team, just give us a few minutes before you start taking down. Um, Newcomers lunch next week, sign up for that, uh, please. Otherwise... Go in peace. Know the grace and the mercy of our God this week.